Well, if you would, turn your Bibles to First uh, Samuel chapter 1. Um, we'll begin in verse 9 today, um, what we're calling Hannah's supplication. Um, if you missed the last few weeks, we have taken a little time to kind of uh, set the historical framework uh, for this journey in the book of First Samuel. Um, but that labor is, is pretty much behind us at this point. Um, we're ready to uh, really let the narrative of this book kind of carry us along. Uh, we've established the situation in Israel um, and the situation in Hannah's family, uh, the polygamy of her husband and, and the barrenness of her womb. And um, now we begin to dive in a little bit closer um, to what is happening just in her heart and her life. Um, her journey with the Lord. And so, uh, best way to begin today is to read the Word of God together. So, I know you just sat down, but let's stand again in reverence and respect for the Word of God. Um, let's read 1 Samuel um, chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head." Verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Now, therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Verse 15, but Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Verse 17, Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. You may be seated. Now, there's a lot happening in this text. Um, part of it, uh, Eli mistaking Hannah for being drunk would probably make a, uh, another sermon for another time, but it does make me think of an old joke since it's a holiday weekend. You know, we've got time for this, I hope. But um, there, there was a man who hosted a dinner party for um, people from his work, and um, everyone was encouraged to bring their children. And so, obviously, you had adults and children there, and they were all seated during the, the meal. And this one little four-year-old girl was just staring at the man across from her and could not hardly even eat her meal um, to take her eyes off of this man and you know of course he got nervous after a while and he thought you know is something wrong with my hair is there food on my chin is you know is there something messed up with my shirt and finally he just couldn't resist and he said excuse me uh, little girl but uh, why exactly do you keep staring at me and um, she you know everyone at the table had noticed her behavior at that point and um, they were listening for her reply and she said well I just want to see how you drink like a fish um Anyway, sorry, you know, you, um, I'm not going to make this a diatribe about the dangers of alcohol, but it could be, okay? Uh, that's all I'm going to say. Um, anyway, let's move into our text, just making sure you're out there and you're awake. You know, we've had a panda bear, and we've had um, a joke about drinking like a fish, so, you know, that's... Uh, everyone's welcome, you know, so. All right, let's break our text down, all right? Uh, we start with the promise. 
um, verses 9 and 11. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, and remember, the family had come together uh, to Shiloh to celebrate and worship the Lord. Um, there had been um, that peace offering rendered as a family, and Elkaniah had given portions out to the family, to Penaniah and her kids, and Hannah had a double portion, but it was just Hannah, no children. Uh, so we know she's emotional at this point. She's upset. Um, and after the meal, which we know she didn't participate in, by the way, she rose. Now, Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. That is kind of the, the promise that we're considering that she offers to make to the Lord. But before we get there, kind of get first things first. First, and most importantly, I believe, um, Hannah is the first woman in all of God's Word to have her prayer quoted for us in the biblical text. Um, that makes this prayer, I believe, very, very significant. It also makes the faith of Hannah very, very important to us and, and instructive, and we'll see that in the next, next few weeks. But um, it's not hard to guess why this is recorded. Most of us would probably agree that it's because the son that she's praying for is going to change the entire history of the nation of Israel. Okay, uh, Samuel is important to biblical history. Uh, but her prayer is recorded for us, and so we're going to study it in some detail. Now, uh, another little detail here about Eli. It's mentioned that he is sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Um, that's, again, remember this is the tabernacle or the tent. Um, the full temple has not been built, will not be built until Solomon's day. Um, but this seat he's taken represents his authority as the high priest. Um, and even uh, in some ways, whether we want to call him the judge of Israel or not, um, he sort of assumed that role at this point in time. Usually people in their culture sit on the ground. So him being seated is a sign of authority. Um, so that's kind of where we find him. Now, back to Hannah, um, but she is the center of this text, though. And, and uh, we've we got to note her posture as she comes to the Lord. It says, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed and said, O Lord of hosts, if you'll indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. By posture, I'm really referring to the attitude of her heart. Everything we see here shows her humility, her deference to God as sovereign, how he's all-powerful, but also how compassionate he is. Um, just her simple approach to the tabernacle to pray, I believe, tells us a lot. She's had this disastrous meal with her family. Um, she's sorrowful. She's broken. Penaniah has been mocking her consistently. Uh, her husband has kind of, uh, in my opinion, been uh, a bit of an oblivion jerk to her it's not been a good day at all and all that pain is going on in her heart and she goes to the tabernacle to pray that is her response and and I believe um, that is how she's responding to this deep pain and this bitterness that she's wrestling with um, she has no one else to approach with her pain again we've seen I think uh, her husband's not um, been the best uh, uh, in her affliction um, even Eli will see further um, there's a lot to be desired in the nation's high priest at this time she she has nowhere else to turn so she turns 
to the Lord. And here she is wrestling with this enormous weight of burdens, and um, she's barely holding on. The language she uses a lot is a lot like the language we see in the book of Job. Um, Job, in his pain, says, Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul who long for death, but it comes not? and dig for it more than for hidden treasures who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. It's hard to find a more bitter verse in God's word than that. Um, and I would argue that Hannah is dealing with much the same biz- bitterness. And, and I wouldn't want to wish this kind of pain and this kind of heartbreak on anybody. But the reality is, in a place this big, we've got to know there's probably more than one or two individuals who are wrestling with this kind of hurt right now. And, and if, if you're not today, you may have in the past, or you may be at some point in the future. And so we need to listen and see what a godly woman does when their life is broken and, and they're at their wit's end end and they have nowhere else that they can turn. Hannah goes to God and that's the pattern that we have to see. Um, Now there's an additional layer here though uh, about her posture. I think we have to note the reverential way in which she addresses God. Um, We saw um, for the very first time in all God's word um, that phrase last week, O Lord of hosts. Well, she prays to God again in this text um, as the Lord of hosts. Um, She sees him as almighty, as all-powerful. But I think her respect for God really emerges and is clear to us when we contrast it with the language that she's using for herself. She prays to God as the Lord of hosts. Um, You can, again... That host, depending on the, um, the passage, can be about um, the stars, can be about the angels, can be about the armies of God, can be about the armies of Israel. But one way or the other, it's that God is, is in charge. He is commander. He is sovereign. He is all-powerful. But look how she refers to herself. Your servant. Forget not your servant. Give to your servant. And again, that is a reverential plea. She's not making a demand. Uh, it's, again, it's framed by that language of, I am lowly, you are magnificent, you are God, and, and I'm just, in a sense, I'm thankful to be in your presence and to be able to cry out to you. That's the language she's using. It should sound familiar because it does sound an awful lot um, like um, the Magnificent, that prayer of Mary that we studied in the Gospel of Luke, not so long ago. Um, Luke 148, Mary, when she was praying, she said, for he has, he, the Lord of hosts, has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Remember, she called herself a servant consistently. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Um, Solomon uses much the same language at the eventual prayer of dedication over the temple itself. Um, Yet have regard to the prayers of your servant, Solomon's calling himself the servant of the Lord, and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and the prayer that your servant prays before you this day. Hannah's posture is really, it's a gospel statement. Yes, it tells us a lot of important things, but it also, more importantly than anything, I believe, alludes to her right understanding of who she is and who God is. And she understands that she's just a servant, that she is a sinner, I believe, in need um, of a gracious God to save her and, and to redeem her. And you have to know and understand, every one of us in this place, regardless of where we are in our spiritual journey, um, we need to know and understand that we too have a sin problem, that we're broken before a holy God, that he is the Lord of hosts, that he is high and lifted up, and that we have to see ourselves as sinners, and God is altogether righteous. That's the only way our, our lives work, our salvation can begin um, to work, and that's the only way our prayer life can really work. 
So let me ask you this morning, have you humbled yourself before a holy God and asked him to save you and to redeem you? Now, we've seen this verse a lot lately, but it's so true. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's why we have to all see ourselves as the servants of the Lord. Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things. Like Mr. Lyle, was, the, the world is deceived and, and our hearts are broken. You cannot trust your heart. You can only trust the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the person and work of God. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart, test the mind, to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And here's the reality. We do not want the fruit of our deeds. We've all sinned. We've all rebelled. We've all fallen short. We all have a problem. And if we get what we deserve, we're going to get judgment. 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, though he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we know how he does that. He does that through the person work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came, he lived, he died, he defeated death, hell, and the grave. He died an atoning death on all of our behalf so that we can have the righteousness of God. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. But if we bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, ask him to forgive us and redeem us, we are saved. We're made new. And in that case, we, we can identify better, I believe, with Hannah and Mary. Uh, they still understood they were but servants of God, but they were in a relationship with God. They trusted him. Uh, Hannah looked forward to the coming of a Messiah. Mary literally held the Messiah in her hands and understood somehow, some way, he was going to atone for her sins. They had faith in what God was going to do, and they were saved and redeemed. Uh, Romans 8 for you did not receive the, the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We're not just servants of the Lord, but we're children of God, and we're members of the family. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That's the transition that's made, and I believe that gives us um, the ability to cry out to God and to pray and to have faith, and that's what we see in this exchange with Hannah here. She is confident that God hears her and answers her prayers, um, and it's, I believe, because of her posture in prayer. She knows who she is. She knows how special the Lord of hosts is. Um, one last New Testament text that fits so well, 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 27 through 31. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It's good theology to see yourself as but a servant or a handmaid of the Lord. And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's the way Hannah approaches uh, the Lord of hosts as his servant. That's her posture. Now we see her passion. Don't lose sight of what she's upset about and what she's praying about. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed and said, O Lord of hosts, if you indeed look on the affliction of your servant, remember me and not forget your servant, but will give um, to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. We can't miss her longing for a child here and the vow that she's making as she prays. That's her passion. 
Now, don't get confused. I do not believe in any way is she bargaining with the Lord. Um, she knows he is the Lord of hosts. Um, she's got her theology right. She's a servant of the Lord. She's a handmaiden. Um, she's nothing before God. He's the Lord of hosts, but she's crying out to him. She's letting him know her heartbeat, and she's saying, if you do this, something extraordinary that only you can do, I, I'm going I'm to reverentially surrender him back to you. Again, it's, it's not a bargain, but she's simply telling God um, what she is willing to do. When she prays for God to remember her in this text, she's asking, um, she's using good biblical language from the history of Israel, by the way, um, that he pays special attention to her need and request. Now again, she already knows that God sees her, that he's not forgotten her, but she's desperate for a special dispensation of his love, I believe. And we can all pray with confidence in that if we're in a relationship with the Lord. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Whether he says yes to our prayers, whether he says no to our prayers, whether he says wait to our prayers, for those who are called according to his purpose. And again, the language she uses, it, it kind of tells us that she knows her biblical history well. Um, I believe she knows um, how God provided a child for Eve after Abel's death. Um, that was a miraculous birth, some would say. She knows how God gave Abraham and Sarah a, a child in their old age, miraculous birth. She knows how God opened Rachel's womb, another miraculous birth. It's a pattern in God's word. He does something in these kind of situations. She knows that God loves children and she's desperate for the fruit of the womb. She actually invokes God's previous language in dealing with Israel um, uh, during the Exodus when Egypt was beginning to execute their male children. Um, the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction, affliction of my people who are in Egypt have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. What God is saying is there, I, I, I remember them. I'm remembering my covenant with them. Uh, I, I'm going to act on their behalf. And that's what she's asking God to do. That's what she's pleading for him to do. And again, I believe she's doing so um, through an understanding of what God has historically done for the nation of Israel. She has a historic faith in God. Remember me, as she says in verse 11, or as she prays. Now, she also knows, I would argue, that giving her son to the Lord was actually covenantially required of all Israelite mothers, by the way. Uh, Exodus 22, 29, you shall not delay the offer um, from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. It doesn't mean they're all surrendered to the priesthood. It doesn't mean uh, they all need to be uh, done with as she's pledging to do, but she understands that the firstborn is significant to God. Um, she understands, I just believe in general, that children are significant to God. They've come, if we're right about our timing, they've come during the Feast of Tabernacles, which is one of the times that Israel celebrated the harvest. Um, they were to be bringing their first fruits, and all she's simply doing is saying, if you give me a son, if my firstborn is a son, I'm surrendering him to you. I'm going to do what you've already asked us to do, is I'm going to turn my child over to you. Now, again, her vow is a bit stronger than that, but in, in the reality, all of Israel's firstborn, and even to go further, all of their children, all of our children, should be surrendered over to the will of the Lord, to do with as he pleases for his, his glory and for their good. 
Now, she does go a step further. She pr uh, promises to raise him uh, under a lifelong um, Nazarite vow um, to dedicate him to the Lord's service entirely. Um, this is the same vow that was placed on Samson um, prior to his birth. It's the same vow invoked in the New Testament um, regarding John the Baptist. Um, it's not an unusual vow for uh, a, a Jew to enter into on a temporary basis, but it was atypical to apply it to someone's entire life. Okay? Now, we don't have time. We could go into Leviticus 27, uh, number 6. We could see it spelled out in greater detail. But in general, it breaks down in three particulars. Um, there would be no razor to cut their hair. Um, those who say, you know, men can never have long hair um, based upon God's Word. Well, you're not reading your Bibles, okay? Um, I'm not telling you not to cut your hair, by the way. Um, you know, if you're not under a Nazarite vow, you need to be careful about that. But um, long hair is permitted. So anyway, um, argue with your neighbor over that. Sorry. Um, just like this isn't a message about alcohol. It's not about men's grooming. So uh, moving on. Are y'all out there? Okay. Just making sure. Um, no contact with fruit of the vine or drinking of wine. Um, no contact with anything unclean, particularly dead bodies. So um, those were the, the general gist of the things that a Nazarite vow included. More importantly, it was, I'm going to be surrendered to the Lord. I'm going to order my life in a way as to honor him and to please him. I, I'm going to serve him with my life. And then these were ways that that was demonstrated on an outward basis. Now, don't miss uh, the forest for the trees, as I, I've just said. It, it's really a dedication of her potential son to the Lord. And it's not a crazy thing. We should all be willing to do much the same. Um, but uh, let's move on. Her, her moment of passionate prayer before God is shattered. Uh, next, we see the protest. And this next section kind of reminds us that sometimes when we do what's right, um, we get criticized by the very people who should encourage us. Uh, but there's also some instructional irony here. She gets perceived as being drunk while she's actually sincere and seeking God. And the one who lobs the accusation at her as being a drunken woman is the actual spiritual leader of Israel at the time. And re reality is what this section is teaching us is that he's in no way in touch with the Spirit of God. He's out of touch, okay? And it's not just a commentary on Eli, but I believe in the bigger picture, this is a commentary on all of Israel. Remember those, you know, Judges 21, 25, and um, there was no king in Israel. Each man did what was right in his own eyes. Well, they were all a lot like Eli. Uh, they were estranged from the Lord. They were not seeking God. They were not in connection with the Spirit. And so they were all consistently making these kinds of mistakes. She runs to the temple. She cries out in prayer. And rather getting encouraged, she gets condemned by the high priest. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Uh, Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Now, we do have to be fair to Eli initially. Uh, there are at least a couple of pertinent pieces of information um, that would likely have led us all to assume the same things had we been in his shoes. First, biblical history would tell us that virtually all prayer in the ancient world was actually audible. 
Um, so Hannah, speaking in her heart, um, was unusual. It could easily be misperceived. Um, Psalm 3, verse 4, I, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. It was very typical uh, of the Jews, particularly, to cry aloud to God. You're probably familiar with the Pharisees' prayer in the New Testament, where he's, he's literally praying about people he can see as he prays, and he's doing so aloud. You know, thank God that I'm not a, a sinner like that guy, not a sinner like that guy. That actually, as pompous as that prayer is and as wrong as he was in so many ways for praying as he did it was not unusual to pray aloud okay that was actually typical um, in Daniel 6 when Daniel prays in his chambers and is arrested and thrown into the lion's den it's best rendered uh, that text literally is saying not only was he praying where he could be seen but he was praying aloud he wasn't trying to hide at all and that was typical that was their custom they prayed aloud I, I believe for a Baptist crowd the Jews Jews would have really set us on edge because they were loud and emotional and they prayed and, and it was a little bit we might say chaotic but that's how they conducted worship okay now second concern here though um, that we often want to minimize um, it's not the point of the message today but it's worth saying typically at the Jewish religious festivals the wine flowed drunkenness well I think I perceived she might be drunk because there were lots of other drunk people walking around, okay? Um, and please know, this text is not celebrating drunkenness. It's condemning it, all right? Um, it, it, we have a problem with alcohol in our culture. I, I want to be uh, very specific. God's Word never says you can't drink, but it definitely says you should not abuse it. I grew up in a family watching uh, a close family member literally drink himself to death, so it's kind of a um, an important topic to me. Let me just say, this is not exalting alcohol use, all right? Um, and, and it's not unusual. This was their custom. They, they drank to excess at these religious festivals, which is mocking God, I would argue. It was still going on in the New Testament era. Uh, Acts 2, 13, the miracle at Pentecost where the people were filled with the Spirit. Guess what the culture thought was happening to those religious people? They're filled with wine, with new wine. Literally, people assumed this was not a supernatural act of God, but it's just them being drunk as they typically were when they went to the temple on these religious festivals. That's a shame, but it's what was happening, okay? You want to destroy your witness for God in our community? Get drunk. That's all I'm going to say. Without flashing too far ahead, though, let me be honest. The atmosphere at the tabernacle at Eli's time, it was not good, and it was not just the drunkenness. His mistake in this text, I believe, is meant to be a signal to the readers. There was a general lack of discernment in his life, but also it extended to his wicked sons um, who were serving in the tabernacle. They had all kinds of problems, and alcohol was not the only one. Um, a number of abuses that were occurring at the temple on a regular basis. Um, I, I suspect he had been forced to confront other people who were profaning the Lord's house because of their abuse uh, of liquor. Now, uh, let's at least give him a little credit for caring enough about the Lord's honor to confront her. But at the same time, we have to admit his sons were the biggest problem, and he never confronts them very well at all. We'll see that in the days ahead. But um, the more pertinent picture is this. Hannah's hurting. She's crying out to her God, and instead of getting compassion from God's man, she gets unfairly rebuked. Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Eli misjudges the situation and actually pours salt on her wounds. And we've got to understand, I think it's easy to miss in the context, but we need to understand um, 
historically his role as high priest here. He was God's man in their day. He, he was the intercessor between the people and the Lord. He was the one tasked with entering the Holy of Holies one time a year on the Day of Atonement and representing the nation in, in those prayers. His rebuke is more than just a misunderstanding here uh, to someone like Hannah. It, it strikes at the very heart of her petition. Her husband's let her down and, and committed polygamy and, and had other sons outside of her. Um, there's no one she can talk to. She comes to the tabernacle to cry out to the Lord to to pray to him and now the high priest basically calls her a wicked woman if the high priest will not regard her prayer what chance does she have that God himself will regard her prayer that's the way a Jew would have looked at this situation and so we have to understand why Hannah is quick to clarify what's going on Hannah answered no my Lord and look at the reverential way she's referring to him Okay, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. If we didn't see her passion earlier, if I haven't set it up well enough, I think you see it here, because look at the phrases that she just runs together. I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Now, again, I think we have to give her credit. She sounds like a woman with a broken heart, bent beneath the weight of her pain, but at least she's still coming to God, right? Where else are you going to go? I know many people in our culture today that they've abandoned church because of hypocrites, because of this, because of that, because of doubt, because of despair. The reality is if you give up on God, you have nowhere else left to go. He is our, our last and only true resource. I love how John Bunyan, the old theologian, referred to it here. In prayer, it is better to have a heart without words than words without heart. Cry out to God. She may not have known what to say or how to say it. She may have, you know, been guilty of a social faux pas in that she didn't pray aloud and she prayed in her own heart. She may not have been praying according to the best Jewish customs of the day, but she loved the Lord and she believed that he can answer her prayer. Despite all her years of pain and heartache, despite her troubled spirit, her anxiety, her vexation at the hands of her rival, Penaniah, despite all of that, she came to God and she prayed. Friends, let me ask you, when we're bent beneath the weight of our burdens, do we trust God enough to continue to go to him in prayer? Even when you say, I've prayed about that, and I've prayed about that, and I've prayed about that, I, I believe part of this, this text would be just keep praying. Keep praying. Uh, Job 7, 11, uh, Therefore I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Uh, again, that's not exalting sort of text about Job. Job's saying, I'm angry and I'm worn out over it. But you know what? He's at least saying, no matter how mad I am, I'm not going to quit talking to God about it. There's a lesson there. I believe God is quite big enough to handle even our bitterness. If you're bitter... There's no better place to go to than to God. He's the only one who probably won't zap you for being bitter. You go to the person you're angry at, that's probably not going to work out real well. Your spouse is liable to get tired of you saying it over and over. The world doesn't like our bitterness so much. I mean, that's what social media is for. You know, just post it there. Anyway, um, 
God listens even when we're bitter. Uh, Lamentations 2, arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. You you can't imagine a worse scenario, by the way, than when uh, this prayer is being prayed. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. When life is awful and you're even in fear of the lives of your children and you're bitter and anxious, cry out to God. Pray. But there's one thing Hannah can't rest about. Again, she can't live with this idea that the priest, the high priest, would believe she's drunk or wicked. Not if she wants God to regard her prayers. A a wicked person has no assurance whatsoever that God is going to hear and certainly no assurance that he's going to intervene. And so in verse 16, she says, Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. And there's a bit of foreshadowing in this exchange. Uh, And next week, well, a few weeks, we're going to get to 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to see that now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Same phrase. They did not know the Lord. It's a shame that the high priest would assume she's a worthless woman while he's turning his back on his worthless sons. She's actually sincere. She's reverent. And Eli confronts her. His sons are are wicked and and a lot of things going on. and, And he rarely, if ever, confronts them. Again, that situation will come to a head, but that's uh, another day's text. Let's wrap this up. We come to the prayer here. Now, we've seen Hannah pray. The prayer I'm referring to is, is not her prayer necessarily. Um, in this case, I believe we see Eli intercede on her behalf. As he should have from the beginning, as Israel's intercessor at the time, uh, and whether or not he deserves her respect or our respect or anybody's respect, I do believe this greatly encourages and blesses Hannah's spirit. Now, we have to understand that we do not need an earthly high priest. You don't need an earthly high priest. You don't need a pastor. Uh, you don't need an intercessor. We have a far greater intercessor. Um, one, we have the, the Spirit of God Himself, and He intercedes for us even when we don't know how to pray. Uh, Romans eight twenty six. likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. If you know the Lord, if you have been saved and redeemed, the Spirit of God is the sign and seal of your salvation, and He intercedes for you. Well, we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And all of that really alludes to the great high priest, um, Jesus Christ himself, who's seated at the right hand of the Father. Um, Hebrews 4, uh, since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. One thing we should note here is how much more thankful we should be that we have Jesus and not Eli, okay? Uh, you come to Jesus, and you know you'll be heard. You know he knows your heart. But let's finish with our text. Uh, the petition, Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. Go in peace was a very common uh, kind of parting greeting in their day. Um, It's repeated often, even in the New Testament. Um, Had to be an encouragement to Hannah. Um, She doesn't exactly get an apology from Eli um, for assuming she's drunk, but at least his words here are kind, um, and it's very clear that he now at least gets a sense for her pain and the purity of her heart. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. Now, without knowing the content of her prayer, okay, and I do kind of wonder why he didn't stop and say, what are you so upset about? 
Let me, let me in a little bit into this brokenness of heart that you have. He doesn't do that, which I would argue he should have done. But regardless, without knowing the content of her prayer, he essentially says that he will be praying that God answers her prayer as she's requested. Now, again, he probably doesn't deserve the respect that she gives him. Um, but these words greatly encourage her. And we see the peace next. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Again, it's clear she's greatly encouraged, um, hopeful, I believe, not just that she's found favor in Eli's eyes, but I believe most importantly that she's now found favor in God's eyes. She's gone to God's man. Um, he said that he's, he's um, praying with her that God would regard her prayer. And, and so she rejoices, even in this earthly priest, as flawed as he might be, that he's joined in her petition. Um, now, a bit of ir irony that's not really addressed here. Um, Eli has no idea that he's just sealed his own fate. Because the child that God is going to bless her with is going to eventually take his job, okay? Um, now, that's a whole other story, and we'll get to all that, but um, he doesn't deserve to be the priest, and he doesn't deserve to be the judge, and God's going to replace him, and it's going to be little Samuel. But anyway, back to Hannah. Um, she's suddenly at peace. She breaks her fast. Uh, her countenance changes. Uh, then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. She's confident that both the high priest and the Lord has heard her prayer. There's nothing to indicate. Please get your theology right. There's nothing to indicate here that she knows her prayer will be answered. So why is she rejoicing? She's rejoicing because she knows her prayer has been heard. See, and that's how prayer works. You don't come to God demanding that he give you what you want. You come to God trusting that he hears you and he will give you what you need. She knows she's been heard. And all she had really prayed, again, she wasn't praying with a guarantee of success. She was simply asking that the Lord would remember her, see her, move on her behalf. She's going to trust him with whatever way that he moves, and that's what she needs. And, and she believes now when the high priest says, I'm praying with you, that it's happened. And yet she never forgets who she is. She says here, let your servant find favor in your eyes. She's beneath the Lord of hosts. She's beneath the high priest. She's so well aware of her humble position before a holy God. And she's willing to trust God with the simple assurance that she's been heard. What he chooses to do is his business. It's good theology. First Peter 5, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And understand, when it says humble yourselves, it means you don't come to God and tell him what he has to do. You come to God and trust him that whatever he does is for your good. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him as he cares for you. And it means that even if you don't get what you think you need, you can trust God because he cares for you. Uh, do you trust him in prayer that same way this morning, church? Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And when you let him know, when you pour out your heart to him, you can know that he remembers you. And that is why the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That transaction doesn't happen because you get what you want. That transaction happens because the Lord of hosts hears you, sees you, cares for you, and he's going to answer your prayer in whatever way is best. Again, for his glory and your good. And you can trust him with that. Now, last little note 
in today's text, a little detail. Um, when Hannah says in verse 18, she says, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Um, it's an interesting word that she uses, let your servant find favor. It's actually the Hebrew word that is a, a shortened form of her own name. Let your servant find grace. My name's Grace, that's what she's saying. I'm Hannah, and, and, and I believe that you love me. I believe that you care for me. I believe that you're gonna pour out grace upon me. First uh, John 3, uh, 21 through 22. Uh, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, and again, our, our heart cannot condemn us if we're in Jesus. We have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive to him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And understand, again, that doesn't mean you, you pray to God and he's a slot machine. You pull down the lever and he kicks out what you want. It means that you pray to God and you trust him that he will do what pleases him and it's for your best and it's for your good and you can rest in that. And, and the way that you can trust in that the best is you come for God. You, you don't want to be a wicked woman. Uh, you don't want to be living in willful sin. You want to be surrendered to God. You want to be honoring him in your life. Uh, therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray to one another you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. When you're right with the Lord, when you're in good standing in a sense, when you've cleared uh, the, the sin out of your life and that fog has been lifted, you can have confidence. You can know that you're being heard. John MacArthur has wisely noted any theology that belittles the power of prayer or intensity of prayer is heresy. I certainly agree with that. Prayer is where we run when we're hurting. And so friends, as a part of our invitation time this morning, as our musicians come, I just want to open it up to a time of prayer. Obviously, as always, we're going to have um, folks down front. If you have a response you need to make, if, if you want to talk to someone about coming to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, or you've been planning to join our church, or, or, or to talk to us about believers' baptism, now's your time to respond. Um, but if, if you've got something um, like that to do, do it. Otherwise, I'm going to ask you, wherever you're at, um, and you can stand... Um, you can kneel. Um, you can move out out of the outside of the row. You can come down front. Um, you can pray. We're, you know, we're Baptists, but we're going to try this. Um, if you want to cry out verbally, you can do that. If you want to pray in the silence of your heart, and I, I'm going to guess, you know, that's how most of us pray, you know. Um, however you need to pray, we want to have a time of prayer. And understand, I, I'm not simply saying, well, let, let's just busy ourselves with prayer. No, if, if you're here today and there's been something on your heart for weeks, months, years, run to God with it. Cry out. Ask Him to hear you, to see you. And as you do so, let's ask Him to quicken our hearts with the faith that it takes to believe that He sees, that He hears, and He answers according to His glory and our good. Can we surrender to God in that way? Now is the time. Let's stand. Again, if you need to, to kneel and pray, you do that. But otherwise, let's stand. Let's pray. Let's respond to God.